Hello, everyone. I'm Kamran. And I'm Billy. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of your two favorite professional digressors. Today we will be discussing Book 4, Chapter 11 of Gardens of the Moon, a novel in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. This is part two of our coverage of this chapter. And this podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the book set in the Malazan universe. It's not a book review, and it's not intended to be a replacement to reading any of the books. Know that Comrade and I think that this series is the best thing ever written, and we're not going to be providing critique. It's strictly fanboy. Now, one thing I did want to mention, I've seen a lot of people talking about that Stormlight Saga by Brandon Sanderson, how yes. good that is. yes. Because I haven't read any of those books yet. I'm not going to. I'm sorry. You're not going to? Ever? I've read some Sanderson and was like thoroughly oh. underwhelmed. Okay. Well, here's my point. If some people would say, well, how can you say this is the best series ever if you haven't read that? My thought here is I'll give it a chance when it's done. Thank but you. until it's done, okay. I'm not going to do it. Agreed. I'll join you. And the reason I say that is Game of Thrones is a good example. I read that the, the books that were out before I started reading the Malazan series. Okay. And it's still not finished. It's still not finished. <laughs> and the, so they went ahead and did the TV show, which ended on an abysmal note. The last two seasons were terrible. I've heard about that. The finish to this series is so satisfying. Yes. That is part of the component of why, to me, it's the best story ever written. Uh, oh, let's put it like this. It's the best... Comp we're talking about what we think of as best in the sense of a completed fashion, I guess we could say. Yes. Because Dune, as far as I'm concerned, is complete with Herbert. You know, yes. At least the first, you know, uh, we get the same thing with Tolkien. They finished the whole series out. Yes, they did. Right? Yes. <laughs> I didn't, I don't know how, I, I I read, me and you, have, I think Hunters of Dune is the last thing I've read, which was that yeah. book seven and part I, two. And I was so disappointed. Oh. I, I think I, I was, my problem there, I was so excited yes. to see some characters come back yeah, and it, it what they did with them was so disappointing they cruised in space for two novels well let's let's i'm sorry i'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm let's so not sorry. ruin it for anybody that hasn't read it but <laughs> i apologize for anybody who but hasn't <laughs> let's just say it didn't live up to the rest of the series yeah, no well, dune was well, one of those ones been. where it starts out amazing and then it kind of yes. goes downhill from there it, whereas it the malazan series starts out good yeah. i wouldn't say it starts out necessarily as good as the first dune book by itself yes. like if you compare gardens of the moon specifically to dune i think dune as a standalone novel is a better novel but the but this the curve that <laughs> this is such a crazier book scene. I don't know Dude if you so could draw too. a linear graph of the awesomeness of this series it's like an exponential growth as it, oh, yes. as it goes towards the end yes so <laughs> yeah, it does it does nothing but this this is is this the weakest book in the series? And it's a fantastic book. Oh, man. It's hard for me to say that because Reaper's Gale is a particularly difficult... It's either Reaper's Gale or Toll the Hounds. It's hard for me from the perspective of the content is it's difficult. It is. And what I mean by that is it's emotionally difficult. Yes. <laughs> there is. There's a lot... You know, I... If, if we haven't said it before, folks, this this you will be traumatized emotionally by the loss of people. <laughs> and, and, and this is a, an emotionally traumatic series. You know, it's yeah, it's 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 rough, man. <laughs> yeah, I want to say it's Toll the Hounds. Okay, that's the hard get, one. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's that's tough. There are difficult books emotionally. Yes, but in terms of are they bad? No, I don't think they're bad. I think they're more kind of tinged with grief. Yeah, I, I would say that's that's a good way to. Yeah. describe it 
Okay. Yeah, they are tragic tales. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, we, yep. we went far afield on that. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, we digress uh, <laughs> one sentence after the announcement of our <laughs> professional digressions. Hey, hey. We, 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 own it, we own it, folks. And now, am, I, am I supposed to give the graphic violence warning? Is there graphic violence this episode? There's none. There's weird, there's, I, think, I think this is a safe Unless one, you but, consider the pastry. Oh, well, there is the poor fellow hung by his feet. Oh, actually, there is graphic violence. Yeah, somebody, okay. gets, uh, no, somebody gets knifed in the eye. Yes, oh. there's graphic <laughs> Okay, sorry. Okay, hold on. I, 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 it's my turn. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, sorry. We, we will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. <laughs> All right. We're starting off with a bang tonight. Yeah, we are. We will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective book. And a quick warning. Today's episode will contain a scene of graphic violence and it's not recommended for children. <laughs> Yes, a very short scene. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Okay. All right. <laughs> the continuation of chapter 11. Okay. Crocus is walking south on Trallet's Walk in Darujistan. He sees the first signs of the upcoming Geteron fate showing up. Dyed banners hanging over the street, painted flowers, and strips of bark framed doorways. Bushels of dried weeds are tacked to walls at every crossing. This last one doesn't make much sense to me. Seems like a bit of a fire hazard, first of all. Also, right. when are weeds visually appealing? You're such a culturist. Hating <laughs> <laughs> on the weed lovers. It's like, dude, it's... <laughs> I'm sorry, do you not weed your garden? <laughs> not if you're, Engli- if you're into English gardens, you don't. I think you cultivate the ruined look in English gardens. Hmm. You're trying to cultivate some unusual. The, I say the cottage that. I don't know. look. Okay, I guess so. But this is—I'm assuming some uh, a fall autumn type of thing here. But yeah, yeah, it, the fire hazard thing, especially living on top of a ball of gas. Yeah, is, it's already bad enough without having all these weeds hanging out. Yeah, I'm sure they're gonna have fireworks. You got a bunch of got a bunch of dried weeds hanging all over the place. <laughs> What are you thinking? By the only okay. gas-powered city on the in the planet, yeah. you know. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. What was that thing that was in the back of Whiskey Jack's mind? <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> what, what could be bothering him? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, Gadroby herders, Reavy traders, and Catlin weavers filled the streets and made the narrower alleys almost impassable. In past years, Crocus had reveled in the celebration, filling his pockets from the crowds. While the fate was ongoing, most forgot the Malazan Empire's exploits in the far north. Crocus's Uncle Mamet smiled at that, saying the turn of the season gave the efforts of humanity their proper perspective. He sounds like a wise man. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Mamet's words returned to him now, and he found himself troubled by them. This is a great quote. Celebrating Geteron's rite of spring shouldn't be an excuse to avoid the pressures of reality. It wasn't just a harmless escape. It was a means of delaying the probable and making it inevitable. We could dance in the streets all year long, he scowled to himself, to a thousand great cycles, and with the same certainty reserved for the coming and going of seasons, the Malazan Empire would march through our gates. They'd end the dance with the edge of a sword. Being industrious, disciplined people, impatient with useless expenditures of energy, grimly short-sighted. 
end quote. <laughs> Our boy is beginning to grow up. Mm-hmm. It's quite astute to recognize the celebration for what it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's also kind of, this is, it's also exciting in a way for him because I think this is what it's like when you have your eyes open sometimes. Mm-hmm. You look at the things a little bit differently. And it's not, not in a negative way necessarily. It is kind of negative, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's, it's different. Seeing it differently. Well, I don't know that's necessarily negative. It's seeing reality, right? If yeah. you're just going to put the blinders on and celebrate just to kind of get it out of your mind that there are problems elsewhere, that's just kicking the can down the road. Yes, it is. You kicking know. the can, yes. <laughs> Sometimes you catch up to that can. Yep. you got to deal with it at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for some reason, I don't know why this... I, I'm always... For, I don't know why this one... And they, did it in the, and they did it in the second Matrix movie. Remember they had the spice orgy? It's... <laughs> It's kind yes. of like the spice orgies in the, the cavern. Fruit. Yes, yeah. it's the mm-hmm. same thing. I'm, I'm like, is this kind of like what they have to do? Is this is this their spice orgy at the end of the season? Like, you know what? We know it's going to be bad, but let's at least kind of try and fake it for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Crocus arrives at his uncle's tenement. The same old woman is sitting out front smoking a pipe. She was there during Crocus's escape from the assassins, right? Yes. She's the yeah. one that tap. Yeah, she taps the. She signals the ruckus. I think. <laughs> I think she's the ruckus maker. <laughs> oh, okay. He nods at her as he passes. Outside Mammoth's door, his winged pet monkey hovered, desperately scratching and pulling at the latch. Crocus moved to open the door, and the pet squealed and flew in circles around his head, getting snarled up in his hair. Crocus said, "Being a pain again, eh?" and entered the apartment. Mamet was preparing some herbal tea and without turning said, tea, crocus? And as for that little monster who's probably riding your head, tell him I've had just about enough of him today. (laughs) (laughs) Moby's getting in trouble. Yeah. All right. Question for you. Mm -hmm. Do you like monkeys? (laughs) This isn't like fish dicks, is it? No, it's not a trick question. (laughs) Monkeys as an animal. Do you like them or not? I kind of got a love hate thing with them. But I'm okay. fascinated with, I'll say this, I am fascinated with them, yes. Okay. I do not like them. Sometimes they can be kind of cute. They're a little bit jarring how human-like they are sometimes. Yes. That kind of bothers me. But I went to high school with a guy <laughs> who... So you said, you said one of my favorite things, is it's an old country saying, it's like, she's just too much like folks. You know, it's, they're, they're just, it's just too much like folks to be letting out of there. I don't want that thing near me. It's... <laughs> You don't want them near you, and I'll tell no. you why. I know why. They'll peel your face off. <laughs> That's a chimpanzee. But uh, oh, let's just talk about, about you know the cute little monkeys, like the one okay. in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The oh, cute right, little right. one that betrayed <laughs> Marion, right? right, Marian, right. right? No. Okay. So I went to high school with a guy. He was on the baseball team, varsity baseball. Neighbor goes out of town. Neighbor has a pet monkey. Wants oh, him to watch the monkey. Oh, my So he's gosh. watching the monkey. Monkey bites his hand and takes about two inches out of the tendon on his index finger out. So he had to have it stapled. So his hand, his his index finger was permanently back. He had to go to physical therapy for a while to get that stretched back out to where he could gain function that finger again. So for those of you out there that are contemplating holding or petting a monkey, and this is just a small monkey, not even a chimpanzee or any other orangutan baby or whatever. Okay. They are vicious, vile little creatures. Do not let their cuteness fool you into getting close to them. They're kind of like horses. They're cool from 300 feet away. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
Well, and also that's also out of the feces throwing range as well as a way I understand oh, the monkeys as well. So it's like, Dude. yes, I'm out of you're out of that range too. So we went to the zoo when we were kids at Los Angeles Zoo, uh-huh. and the gorillas were throwing feces out of the crowd. <laughs> Oh my god! And the crowd was screaming, and the zookeeper's like, "Don't react! Don't they, they're going to do it more if you react." Right. And the crowd is still screaming. Oh my god! It was hilarious. <laughs> Just Show trying to get a rise that, out of that it. Is, oh my gosh, that's too. But funny. they are not monkeys. No. Yeah, but gorillas are incredibly uh, powerful. You know, I have a friend of a friend whose father, <clears throat> a good family friend, who had passed away a couple years back. Uh, he did construction work at the Dallas Zoo, actually. Um, with this private company, he said they had to, to do something with one of the new enclosures mm-hmm. for the gorillas. And talking about how these fellas walk around, kind of like how the gorillas will walk around, and kind of like popping each. It's like, it's like you would walk around and hit your friend in the arm, you know? Yes, yes. It's kind of like they're popping each other like that. It's like that'll break your back. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we cannot that take. Strong. They are that strong. I mean, it's just going to snap yeah. your spine like a twig if you get popped by one of them fellas like that. And yeah. he's like, and there, so yeah, I've always, so I'm with you. I, I don't like them either. I mean, it's like love, hate, I'm like, yeah, 300 feet rule. Yeah. Applies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, like, like most wildlife, I do prefer it to remain wild and alive outside of my house and outside of my distance where it can screw me up and hurt me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unless it's one of your cats, right? Where right. they don't belong outside in, in the world that we've constructed, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> so. The only time I feel like throwing the cat out when I have them is if, you know how it is when they're sitting on the arm of the sofa, they wig out and fall asleep and they fall off and they latch onto you trying to mm-hmm. prevent the, the fall to the death and you've got, oh, you're, yeah. you're experiencing new things that our Native American brethren used to do to themselves by hanging from certain things. I'm like, no, oh, thank you. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes my cat, he was pretty big. 23 yeah. pounds at one point. Holy I think. moly. He was a big boy. And he would attempt to jump up onto my lap. Oh, oh my gosh. But he would miss <laughs> and then try not to fall. But I was what was stopping him from falling. And his claws <laughs> being sunken into me were his anchors. Yes. yes <laughs> but, I've and, been there. And I've been there. There was dragging. <laughs> claw marks <laughs> and i would scream my wife would freak out ask you know because just out of nowhere i start screaming not very often and uh yeah i'd be covering you know, oh my gosh dude it's are you reminded of the images of our indian brethren hanging from their chest you know from these oh, things yeah. it's like yeah, that's, it's, it's like terrible. no yeah. you don't need to do that oh let me hang a cat from you for about five minutes if you can take that you're good it's yeah. like i've been there done that it's like no thank you yeah <laughs> All right. Did we pa- does that mean we pass our rights of manhood? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I said I still feel like I'm not a man. It's like I'm still like <laughs> this little boy. I'm like, I, 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 the, the vague and confusing aspect of life, sometimes it just doesn't really kind of go away. Mm-hmm. It just kind of stays there. And you're like, okay, you just kind of learn to accept it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Moby sniffed indignantly. And flapped over to Mammoth's desk, where he belly flopped and scattered <laughs> papers to the floor. He chirped. That sounds like a pet cat, yeah, speaking of with, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah with thumbs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Mammoth sighed and turned with a tray in his hands. He noted that Crocus looked tired. Crocus slumped into the less ragged of the two chairs in the room and said, Yes, tired, and in a dark mood. I wonder why he chose the better chair for himself. Shouldn't he give it to his uncle out of respect? If it is indeed the better chair, yes. But he knows his uncle. Maybe his uncle prefers the other one. Oh, maybe the uncle uses the other one more or something. Possibly. Special chair. Okay. It could be. 
We're going to give him the, I'll give Crocus the benefit of the doubt that he's not being inhospitable and disrespectful. But then again, he did steal his uncle's tools too. He did. (laughs) So he's not that respectful to his uncle. So yeah. But by his uncle's own philosophy, he should have done a better (laughs) job of taking care of his philosophy. This is true. We'll get to that. Yes. All right. Mamet smiled and said, my tea will do its usual wonders. Crocus didn't look up and said, maybe, maybe not. Mamet set the tray down on the table between the chairs and sat down in the other chair. He said, as you know, I possess few moral qualms about your chosen profession, Crocus, since I question rights of any kind, including ownership. Even privileges demand responsibility, as I've always said, and the privilege of ownership demands that the owner be responsible for protecting his or her claim. My only concern, of course, is for risks you must perforce take. Lad, a thief must be sure of one thing, his concentration. Distractions are dangerous. And that is a pretty loose moral framework there. (laughs) Yes, it is. I agree that the onus should be on the owner to protect their belongings, but I don't agree that it's okay to take advantage of those that don't take care of their belongings. What if they don't know the risk that's involved, you know? I agree exactly, because especially I forget that he makes this statement about, I question rights of any kind. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, huh, I kind of forgot about that statement being in there. So I'm like, okay, but, uh, but yeah, this is pretty close to anarchy, <laughs> yeah. you know, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting. Now, Jesus himself does say that a strong man arm keeps his house. And that's a paraphrase kind of, but you know, he's, he's for keeping your house, but, but he's not saying it's okay to take things either. Cause he's very mm-hmm. down on that. You know, Jesus was very down with, you know, the 10 commandments. So you don't steal, but yeah. he's also for protecting your stuff too. <laughs> Because he knows people will steal from you. Yeah. All right. So we're in agreement on that one. Yes. Well, it sounds like, I'll tell you the problem with philosophers is that they, that's what, that's what Mamet sounds a bit much like, even though he's an alchemist, I think also, but the philosophers with about questioning rights of any kind. I'm like, you guys. Mm. Why does any of it matter? Yeah. Why does any matter? It's like, dude, please. Okay. Why do you have to feel anything about that? You're correct. You really don't. (laughs) Close to nihilism. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, go be a nihilist elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. We we have nothing to fear, Donnie. These men are nihilist. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, don't, please. Sorry. It's, it was, I'm so sorry when the nihilism comes up. I have to bring it up too. It's just yeah, like, I you mean, know, you can't help but do you it. Can't, you but there's know? no many. There's not any movies that talk about nihilism. You know, it's right. like you know, <laughs> it's like well, at least you can say what you want about you know a certain ethos as you. But hey, it's like nihilism. They don't believe in anything. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, we are, we believe in nothing. <laughs> sorry, it's my so girlfriend sorry. cut off her toe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Crocus looked up at Mamet. Dude, Billy. (laughs) Okay. The sweater's coming off. Sorry. (laughs) And Crocus looked up at Mamet and asked, what have you been writing all these years? Mamet was surprised. He sat back and said, well, a genuine interest in education then? Finally? As I've said before, Crocus, you possess the intelligence to go so far. And while I'm but a humble man of letters, my word will open to you many doors in the city. Indeed, even the city council is not beyond your reach if you would choose such a direction. Discipline, lad, the very same requirement you've mastered as a thief. Now, why anyone would encourage a loved one to enter that den of vipers called the city council, I have no idea. 
Well, it's it's at least a legitimate face to being a thief. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good call there. <laughs> so I think it's safer yeah. being a thief or an assassin in this town, though, than maybe being a council member. Possibly. I know yeah. it. Mm-hmm. That, that council, boy, that's a, you ain't kidding when you said a den of vipers. That's a, boy, that's a rough bunch. Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk a lot about them, but they're, we're, we understand them to be a pretty rough bunch. They are for the most part. I think yeah. I can name two that we're ever introduced to that are maybe three that are yeah. decent men. Yeah. And I say men because all the characters are men, not yeah. excluding women here. Yeah. In the context of the city council, they're all men. The ones that right. we find out about. Don't blame us, folks. It's Erickson's fault. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, Sorry. there's enough uh, equal gender distribution <laughs> oh, elsewhere. Yes. yes. Crocus got a crafty look in his eyes, then asked, How long would it take to become known in such circles? Mamet told him, It's the learning that matters. Crocus said, Of course, but his mind was full of images of a certain sleeping maiden. Mm hmm. Mamet blew on his tea, then said, with full-time studies, perhaps a year. He then asked if there was a need for haste. Crocus answered, just youthful eagerness, I suppose. He then went on to ask about Mamet's writings again. Mamet glanced over at the desk and eyed Moby before telling Crocus he was beginning the fifth volume with the reign of Ektalm, the second to last of the tyrant kings. The mention of tyrant kings always piques my interest. I know it's a very evocative phrase, isn't it? Yes. And we never really get to hear too much about what made them so tyrannical. Right. Just that they were tyrants. You know, is it one of those Esselmont books touches is he is he one of the tyrant kings? Orb Scepter Throne does delve into this a little bit, but you never hear about the reign of the tyrant king. No, no. Crocus doesn't know who Ectalm is. Mamet smiled and gave some additional information, to which Crocus replied, Oh, right. Mamet went on to tell Crocus that if he's serious about this endeavor, Darugis Stan's history would be where they began, and that meant starting with Volume 1, not Volume 5. Crocus nodded and said, Born on a rumor. Mamet said, Yes, lad, Darugis Stan was born on a rumor. He then hesitated and asked, You've heard that saying elsewhere? Recently? Crocus said he had heard someone mention it, but couldn't recall who it was. He did remember it was Ralic Nam that said it. He kept this information from his uncle. Presumably, Mamet is less than enthusiastic about Crocus hanging around assassins. <laughs> yes, while, while I love Ralic Nam, I assume he is not a good influence. <laughs> Oddly, he's one of the best influences. I, I know it! I know it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess the perception would be not as good of an influence, right, as Marilio. Professional killer is is more looked down, I think, is yeah, they're more shunned than a thief almost in this yeah. society. Mm-hmm. I say that, I don't know. They're both looked at as almost, in this town, it's almost like they're, well, they're professionals, you know. A necessity. Yeah, it's a necessity yeah, to, right, to go yeah, along absolutely. with a den of vipers. <laughs> there has to be some offset there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mamet asked if Crocus knew what it meant. And when Crocus said no, Mamet provided him with an explanation. Mamet went on to tell Crocus of the three elder races and what had happened to them. The fork rule of sale had disappeared due to disinterest, and the other two, the Jaghut and the Talan, had warred together endlessly. Eventually the Jaghut fell, for they were a race of individuals, battling as much among themselves as they did the Talan. 
It's said that some survive to this day, though not on Genebacus. He mentions that the names had degenerated from Forkrul Assail to Crusail, and from Jaghut to Jag or Shurl. Shurl one is a curious one to me. I think these other ones all sound familiar to me, except for Shurl, because Jag is used quite a bit. Shurl, that does not sound familiar. Yeah. Jag, definitely. Crusail, I don't specifically remember it being used anywhere else. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall that either, but it makes sense, though. I can yeah, see how you can... Yeah, I can see that. We see a lot of this with the Toblakai, Thelemin, Tarthanol, yes. Toblakai, various derivations of that Oh, pop yes. Up. That's a lot of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mamet went on to say that among the Gadrobi hill tribes, it was rumored that a Jaghut barrow lay somewhere in the hills around Darujistan. That rumor spread to kingdoms that had since crumbled to dust. The searchers came, first in a trickle, then in hordes led by power-hungry shamans and warlocks. The hillsides became laced with trenches and boreholes. From the camps and shanty towns, a city was formed from the thousands of treasure seekers arriving each spring. It sounds a lot like the American gold rush. Think of San Francisco and California. Yeah, exactly what I think of. Mm -hmm. Any boom town, I guess. Mamet went on to say the barrow was never found and the rumor had since dwindled. Few were even aware of it anymore, and those that did knew better than to resume the search. Crocus asked why. Mammoth said, Rarely does a jaghut construction appear in the hands of a human, but it has happened, and the consequences have inevitably been catastrophic. The lesson is clear for those who would choose to recognize it. Crocus was lost in thought, then said that the crusail vanished and the jag were defeated. He asked what happened to the third elder race. Mamet was about to say something, then stopped himself, which caused Crocus to wonder what he was holding back. Mamet said, No one is certain what happened to them, Crocus, or how they became what they are today. They exist, sort of, and are known to all who have faced the Malazan Empire as the Talan Imas. Only a historian would know so much as Mamet does about all yeah. this stuff. Yeah, he's he's got a bunch of info there. That was a big that was a and a short that was a short amount for an expo dump. <laughs> Yeah, and it kind of does cement some of the information we've been talking about with the elder races, right? Yes, it does. They use Mammoth beautifully in this, by the way. He's our he's our expo, he's our expositor. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are taken to Sari, who is pushing through the crowd, struggling to keep up with Kruppa. Her difficulty in following him is due to a storm within her head. The mention of the word seer by Whiskey Jack had awoken something in her head. It felt as if something had burst open with that word and now warred against all that surrounded it. Initially, the feeling had been overwhelming, but she felt it waning. Whatever had burst open was losing the battle, but she thought she heard the faint sound of a weeping child. Sari spoke, I am Cotillion, patron of assassins, known to all as the Rope of Shadow. The seer is dead. The weeping grew fainter. Sari continued, I am within, yet apart. I stand at Shadow Throne's side, and he is named Ominous, and he is the Lord of Shadows. I am here as the Hand of Death. She smiled and nodded to herself, once again in control. The challenging force was now gone, buried deep inside. The luxury of weeping, of anger, of fear did not belong to her, had never belonged to her. For those that may be confused, the force that was awakened was Riga, who implanted herself in the girl's mind to protect her. Yes. Now, when she's talking about weeping, anger, fear, not belonging to her, 
is that cotillion suppressing these emotions in himself or is it simply the vessel that is not allowed to feel these emotions i don't know that's his dad's got a good question though because he does actually say i am cotillion mm-hmm. here. so i'm guessing that that would be the the person who he's possessing that's out there that he's trying to keep down they're unable to keep him down i guess I would imagine somebody in his position would want to feel that way, though. The stuff that they've had to do to get there. Yeah. I would th- but in another thing uh, that I have questioned about, in, in, in this world about the possession with Cotillion mm-hmm. slash the rope, is he, as the possessor, is he able to multitask? Is he still, uh, is he doing things with a Manus slash Shadow Throne while he is also possessing her? That's a good question, because if he has that level of capability, that's really impressive. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm kind of getting at. That would, you know, if, yeah, exactly. If he can be two places at once, basically, then, you know, then he explaining that would be one of the lures of ascendancy. I mean, that is godhood. I have to imagine he has to kind of be in a trance. You think that's, of what okay. Quick Ben does when he goes yeah. to talk to Hairlock, yeah. and he just kind of slumps in place. His spirit has left his body. Yes. Right? It's kind of yeah, like Elvis that. has left the building. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry drew a deep breath, and her senses narrowed on the task at hand. The fat little man was dangerous. She didn't know why. <laughs> every time she saw him through the crowd, every power she had hissed in alarm. She told herself that all that is dangerous must die. Kruppa was walking through the market along Salt Walk beneath the second-tier wall in the Lakefront District. Quick geography lesson for Darugistan's layout. Darugistan lies on the shore of Lake Azure to the south of it. When they talk about this second tier wall, it's a wall that's running east-west and it's kind of dividing the lakefront district with the higher tier up as you get into the city. Okay. Activity was at its frenzied peak. The heat was building and fights broke out every few minutes. <laughs> The crowd's movement pulled the fighters apart before the guards could come to break the fight up. The Reavy plainsmen were calling out in nasal sing-song, describing their horse flesh for sale. Gadrobi herders were surrounded by their braying goats and sheep, while others had carts of cheeses and jugs of fermented milk. Daru fishermen walked with spears of smoked fish overhead, swarming with flies. That sounds appetizing. <laughs> Man... All of it sounds less than appetizing to me. It's made a stench from this place would knock a buzzard off a dead body, I think. It's <laughs> I like, mean, not think if, about not the, if everybody's used to smelling it, right? I guess not. But, I mean, it's like the, the fish, it, they're at least smoked. But, man, the, the idea of the fermented milk, that would stink. <laughs> yeah. Milk, milk's kind of got a funky taste any, or funky smell to, to it anyhow. And it doesn't take much to be but if fermented. How long do they ferment it? Oh, that'd be na- Is it yogurt? <laughs> I mean, it almost sounds like it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And on top of that, it's not cow milk. It's sheep or goat milk. So it's even more pungent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I couldn't take it. (laughs) If you grew up with it, you'd be used to it. Yeah, you wouldn't think nothing about it. (laughs) Catlin Weaver sat behind piles of their brightly dyed textiles. Gredfallen farmers had carts of fruits and sweet tubers. Wood sellers led ox-drawn wagons through the crowds, their children clinging to the stacked bundles of wood like monkeys. <laughs> I love that description of the children. I do, I do too. That's hilarious. Man, I got to tell you a story. Okay. Yesterday, I was working out in the garage. My kids were playing in the front yard. My youngest comes up to me, and he says, uh, one of my toys ended up on the roof. Uh, I don't know how it got up there. 
it has no idea how I got up there. I come out and they're playing with some stuffed animals in the front yard, and one of them's on the roof. Oh my god! And and I'm just I'm trying not to laugh, and I'm like, this is not funny, guys. But I'm like, I, I'm obviously trying. I'm 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 really having a difficult time not laughing, you know. But I'm You're trying right. to cover my my face and everything. <laughs> one of my older sons videotaped this before I walked up, and my the youngest. Ex- expression it's hilarious because he's like how the heck did this end up on the roof and he's just looking at it and he's like kind of looking at it and my older son's like dad is not going to be happy about this and my son's just kind of walking around like kicking rocks (laughs) so funny dude oh my gosh that's great dude no idea how it got up there (laughs) breeze took it up there stiff breeze carried it up there i guess is this during hurricane season down your oh, way? Yeah. <laughs> it was it was kind of windy, but not that windy. If you, yeah. Dark robed men and women from Callows sang out the clashing claims of their thousand sects of sects of Drek, each carrying their faction's icon. That's a hard word to say, man. Yes, it is. Drek is what, the word. What sex of Drek? Yeah. <laughs> Drek sex. <Yeah. laughs> That sounds worse than Baptist. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm a Baptist. I could say that. It's like mm-hmm. I got a bunch of different Baptists. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're fighting about, but we don't agree on everything. Apparently. <laughs> now, Drek is the worm of autumn or the god of decay. And Kalos is located far to the southwest of Daruzhistan, almost as far south as Black Dog Forest is to the north. It's way down there. Okay. The rest of the areas they mentioned are generally in the vicinity of Daruzhistan, and we've mentioned their geographical locations on prior episodes. And just a quick aside, I I did forgot to remark on those pictures of your map. That's a oh, okay. nice map. It's a very yeah. nice map. <laughs> it's pretty cool, isn't it? It's really sweet, yeah. dude. Mm-hmm. Oddly, the scene that we're about to talk about is one of those key scenes for me from this book. Yes. It leaves one of those impressions in my mind. You know, uh, there are so many authors that, that would, for me, that live to get five of these in a book, images that just stick with you. Mm-hmm. This is nothing. Uh, we passed five long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, these, and, and, I'm, I, and, I'm, and these are good writers, mind you. And I don't know why he has so many things that stand out. But this, I'm with you. This is one that stands out with me, too. Krupa okay. at work, because this is the only time we really see him work, isn't it? Uh, I mean, kind of. I mean, other than trying to irritate somebody. Well, all that stuff with Krull is work in a weird yeah, way. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of work. You know? It is. I mean, that's his power, I think. Yeah, He's got his Warren in his dreams. I think that's yeah, that, kind of I think how... that's it. I see. As Krupa walked, his hands waved about, seemingly of their own accord. The movement was no affectation. It had a purpose, disguising the gesturing required for the casting of spells. As a thief, Kruppa stole foods and sweets mostly, and it was these desires that had caused him to hone his skills of magic. The movement of his arms was timed to catch apples flying from baskets, pastries leaping from trays, chocolate-covered cherries plucked from pans, all of them moving so swiftly that they were no more than blurs dodging the bodies in their path. Is... Is the magic he does, is it to steal or is this just, uh, this is because I'm confused on this scene myself. I love it. It's either like drunken master Jackie Chan style and he looks like he's doing crazy things and stealing things or his magic is pulling the, is he using the magic to steal the food? Yes. I think it's a combination of things. It might be 
some cantrips to keep people distracted while also making the stuff fly around objects. So it's kind of not telekinesis, but a similar type principle, right? right? Where it's drawing it to him, but also it seems to be done in a way that either he's really good at sleight of hand and selecting targets that aren't paying attention, or there is some type of subterfuge going on to where maybe his spells are clouding their minds or something like that. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Inside Kruppa's wide, flopping coat sleeves, pockets of various sizes had been sewn. Everything that entered his hands disappeared up his sleeves and was tucked into appropriately sized pockets. After a long, circuitous route, he arrived at the Phoenix Inn, pausing to speak with the lone thug standing there. As he spoke, he removed a glazed honey ball from his sleeve and took a bite. He then pushed open the door and disappeared inside the inn. So, as I mentioned, this scene sticks with me. The food flying at impossible speeds into his hands and going into these pockets specifically. <laughs> I'm like you. This, that's, a, those do, that's a big image that sticks with me, too. Yeah. And we've already covered my other part of the question. Mm-hmm. So. Now, the food's in question. Specifically, the chocolate-covered cherries <laughs> and the glazed honey ball raise some questions. <laughs> my son, the same son who didn't know how... <laughs> The object got on the roof. Is this the youngest? A- is this your youngest? Yes. Okay. That's, that explains the love, too. I, yeah. I don't know what it is with the young one. It's the young ones are always the funniest one. I'm the youngest. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm the so you, you, with the love. You understand. Yeah, I got I you. Do. I understand it from that point of view. So he leaves a semi-open chocolate-covered granola <laughs> bar in a pocket in his backpack. And you would not believe the mess that it made inside that. It was melted to (laughs) pencils and pieces of paper and erasers and crayons. It was all a jumble. Okay. How is it possible that Kruppa's pockets aren't just a nasty mess? Are they each enchanted like a mini bag of holding? I'll always love the D&D references. I'm sorry. The old bag. I think I threw a party member into a bag of holding once and left him in there. I don't know if he's Oh, you only have like 20 now. minutes of air in oh, a bag of holding. Well, then, yeah, then, yeah. Then, you can. <laughs> well, then I guess he's dead then. <laughs> <laughs> he's been there yeah. for a while now. So uh-huh. it's like it's been decades. So it's like, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, okay. and for those of you, <laughs> the uninitiated, you never put a bag of holding inside of a bag of holding. I, it's it's, it's like, basically a nuclear bomb. I did bomb. not know that. I did yes. not know that. It's a, yeah. It's like an antimatter reaction. It basically, something like along those lines. Yes. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How catastrophic is it? It's like a nuclear bomb. Okay. Right on. It's, it's a big explosion, basically, have or you, implosion, you, whatever you, you want to call it. Have you used this? Not to my advantage. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't think of a scenario <laughs> it, where I would be able to survive that. No, 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 I didn't do anything like that. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Now, this sticky food going up his sleeves does a lot to cement the sticky, greasy (laughs) image that we have of Kruppa. We we almost need, like, the sweaty, fat, white guy alert button. (laughs) (laughs) With stickiness. I I know. And what's bad is, like, I, I, I hate. Oh, there's nothing more than this world that I hate with my hands being greasy. I worked at a mechanic shop for 22 years with my father, mm-hmm. and I'm not a, I'm not a mechanic, mind you. I can change oil, yeah. and I can be covered head to toe in oil and grit and grease, and I hate every minute of it. But the hands, the hands being—I mean, I'll have to remedy the hands being dirty quickly. It, I, 
It's it's OCD, man. It, it is, food greasiness to me is worse than the car greasiness. I it don't is. like the car greasiness either, but food greasiness is like another level of See, disgust. Car greasiness is a use. There, there, there is a use behind the greasiness. <laughs> There's a functionality <laughs> that is not. You know, it's not an unhealthy component to an engine. That it, mm-hmm. while it is a healthy compo- an unhealthy component to our engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't like. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you. Those are those are unique and very specific kinds of hand dirtiness that I don't like either one. The only yeah. thing that's worse than that is the stuff under my nails. Yeah. Oh, that's, and that's I see rough. I see yeah. movies with people with dirty nails. I'm like, dude, I just I, I just want to hurt myself trying to get them nails clean. I'm like, dude. <laughs> I get it. I do. Okay. Speaking of being covered in <laughs> fluid, I was working in the <laughs> offshore oil and gas industry, okay. and we worked on these big hydraulic oh, subsea yeah. things, right? These stacks. And somebody was testing, they were testing some valves, and they had a bucket of fluid. And I was kind of working in the vicinity, mm-hmm. and they moved the hose that was coming out of the bottom of it. It was like a, kind of a drain <laughs> bucket. And it just dumped itself all over the front of my clothes. And I was covered in hydraulic fluid. Now, this hydraulic fluid, it's not like the kind of stuff that you would use in, say, like a cylinder for a... Yeah, it's it's not like brake fluid. This stuff is designed to be actually released in the ocean in certain amounts because it's like subsea fluid, right? Because you have to purge it off. But still, it didn't feel good. Right. And it made me think, okay, how is this good for the ocean? <laughs> if it doesn't feel that good, it's not good for the ocean, but I don't know. How is it acceptable in the ocean? Here, here's an intriguing thing that about uh, – I'm, uh, dude, I'm not going to digress. I'm going to digress super fast. I'll try to make it quick. Okay, we'll cut it off after this. <laughs> yes. There's billions of gallons of oil leak up from the ocean floor every year. Yeah, on its own. Billion, yeah. with a B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And our oceans, there are organisms, and apparently it, 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 you know, it's diluted enough. There's so much water, it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just diluted. Okay. It doesn't hurt it at all. Apparently, the, the, the ocean, the, the ocean is fine. Okay. I guess I don't know. We, no one knows what's going on there. We don't go. We, it's not like we're hanging out down there with some like sixty-five percent of it's unexplored. I know it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We have a, a, it's, a, it's another planet down there. As far as we're, not, it's it's a mm-hmm. whole other world. Yeah. <laughs> Quite literally. Sari stood half a block away, leaning against a wall of a tenement. She had watched Kruppa's dance through the crowd and recognized him as an adept. She was confused because Kruppa's mind hinted at far greater capabilities than those she had seen. This was confirmation of him being a dangerous creature. Sari studied the inn and noted that the man at the doorsteps was screening people, and she couldn't detect any secret password or gesture. Nevertheless, she intended to enter the inn. The inn was the type of establishment that Whiskey Jack had sent Quick Ben and Kalam to find. A haunt of thieves, strong arms, and assassins. She wasn't sure why Whiskey Jack was looking for such a place. Sorry knew Quick Ben and Kalam had suspicions about who she really was, and that their arguments were beginning to convince Whiskey Jack. If they could, they would keep her out of their activities. She didn't intend for that to happen. She left her position and approached the inn. The man at the entrance focused on her and grinned. He said, following Kruppa around, eh? Girls shouldn't carry swords anyway. Hope you're not planning to go inside. With a sword? Uh Uh-uh. Not unescorted anyway. Sari stepped back and looked around. The nearest pedestrian was over a street away. She told the man to let her pass. She wondered to herself how the fat man had spotted her. The man on the stairs made a suggestive comment. 
with a threat included if she didn't comply. Her left hand darted out and buried a dagger in his right eye. The man flipped over the railing and fell beside the steps. She reached down and retrieved her dagger, then looked around. No one had seen her actions in the gloom. She entered the inn. Not two steps into the inn, she came across a boy who was being held aloft <laughs> by Arilta and Mies. They had his feet tied together, and every time he reached for the rope, they cracked him on the head. <laughs> I wonder what he did to earn this. I, I, I like just how it's just thrown in there casually. That this, this, some poor schmuck is hanging by his feet, getting clobbered in the head by these women. I'm like, huh. Yeah, it's like the, the random drowning of cats yes. <laughs> or dunking of yes. cats or whatever yes. it was, you know, exactly. in, in the village. Just like, well, it's just, just going on. It's just, it happens here apparently at the Phoenix Inn. I'm assuming it's a rough place. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming I'm assuming this fellow probably earned it. Yeah, probably he's probably stealing food or something. Something because these people seem to be pretty. I mean, they're, they're they're they seem to be pretty decent folk for the most part, and they would help someone out if they. I think they'd let someone feed, but stealing something from somebody or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of them grabbed Sari's arm, this is Irilta or Mies, and told Sari that if she got in trouble to call for either of them. Sari thanked them and continued into the inn. She spotted Kruppa seated at a table near the far wall. She found a spot at the bar that would allow her to observe him. She decided that since Kruppa knew her, she wouldn't waste any effort hiding her attention. Often, that was the pressure that cracked a man's will. In a war of patience, the mortal is ever at a disadvantage. Um, everyone but Kruppa. <laughs> <laughs> is he mortal? I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know either. Why, I'm not sure. It's like, the more I read, what is it's, he? It's, that's why I get more and more troubled. It's like the more mm-hmm. and more reading, I'm like, what is, is he? What if he's actually that creator? <laughs> yeah, that'd be crazy. Moral. That would mm-hmm. be un- unusual. Crocus was approaching the Phoenix Inn, lost in thought. The task set before him by his uncle was intimidating. His learning extended beyond books into etiquette and the intricacies of the court. He vowed to himself that he'd see it through. His goal was to stand before the Darl Maiden one day, awaiting a formal introduction. Something in that image mocked him. His background as a thief made it absurd, but it steeled his resolve. He'd get there one day soon. Until then, he had other matters to attend to. As he approached the inn, he saw a shadow beneath the railing on the steps. As Sari reached the bar, the door to the inn slammed open and a man entered. He shouted, Someone's murdered Chert! He's been knifed! (laughs) Half a dozen of the patrons surged to the door and went outside. Sari turned to the barman and ordered Gredfallen Ale in a pewter tankard. Meese walked up and told the bartender, Attend the lady, Scurve. She's got taste. Meese then leaned close to Sari and said, Good taste all round. Chert was a pig. (laughs) Sari stiffened and reached into her cloak. Meese told her to take it easy. They wouldn't tell anyone. Around here, they take care of themselves first, and that she didn't want a knife in her eye. She reminded Sari that they told her they'd take care of her. Crocus walked up on the other side of Meese and said, Damn it, Meese, I'm having a really bad day. Meese chuckled and put an arm over his shoulder. She ordered Scurve to pour Crocus another Gredfallen ale. He'd earned Darujistan's best. Meese then leaned close to Sari and told her, Next time you don't want to show that kind of breeding. Not around here, anyway. <laughs> we don't take too kindly to your types around here. Now take it easy, Skeeter. <laughs> <laughs> 
so sorry. We don't take kindly to those that don't take kindly here. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry frowned down at her drink and thought she'd been careless ordering the city's best. After taking a sip, she said, that's fine. Fine indeed. Crocus leaned forward and offered Sari a weary but warm smile. They could hear the alarm from the guards outside. Sari watched Crocus's gaze travel down her body and stop suddenly. His smile tightened and his face whitened even more than before. Scurve set the tankard before Crocus and Crocus averted his gaze from looking at Sari. Scurve told Crocus to pay for the drink before he drank, noting that he was getting to be just as bad as Kruppa. <laughs> Crocus reached into his pocket for some coins. Three of them fell from his hand and clattered on the bar. Two clattered, then fell to a rest. The third spun and continued to spin without losing momentum. Sari, Mies, and Scurve all watched it spin. Crocus reached for it, then hesitated. Echoes of power slammed into Sari's skull as it spun. From within, she felt a surge of power in answer. The coin skidded across the bar, bounced once high into the air, and clattered to a stop directly in front of Crocus. Scurve shouted as this happened. Of the four that witnessed the event, no one spoke. Crocus reached out and grabbed the coin. He said, not this one. Scurve said, fine, and reached out to gather the other coins on the counter with shaking hands. Sari reached down and brushed her hand against her dagger's hilt. Her hand came away wet. She realized that Crocus had seen the blood, which meant that she would have to kill him. Only somehow she knew she wouldn't. Kruppa shouted out to Crocus. Me sneered in Kruppa's direction and said, the flopping fish himself. (laughs) Kruppa calls, lad. Crocus returned the coin to his pocket and snorted in response to Mies. He said, later, Mies. After Crocus left, Mies told Sari that her and Arilta look out for Crocus. Sari informed her that Mies had no worries on that front. Mies sighed and ordered them some cheap beer. Daru beer in earthenware. I forgot to write this in here. Sari did mention that she realized he was the coin bearer in this moment. Oh, okay. I don't know exactly where in that little section she mentioned it. I think it was probably when she realized she wasn't going to kill him. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it was in there somewhere. Okay. Kalam walked out of Quip's Bar, a common haunt of shipmen and fisher hands in the lakefront district. And residents of City Paw Town. Or is that Soda Sopa? <laughs> I'm sorry, you started this with we don't take kindly remark. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. You activated my South Park power. I'm oh, sorry. my God. <laughs> Quip's Bar is located against the second-tier wall. And that's the second-tier wall I was talking about earlier. Yeah. It had a backward lean and is surrounded by squatter shacks made of driftwood and hull planks that had washed ashore from the occasional wreck on Mole's Reef in the lake. Dusk had brought a light rain and far to the north over the lake, lightning flashed. Kalam walked out just as a local gray face opened a valve and lit a nearby gaslight with his burning pitch stick. Isn't that called a torch? Yes. <laughs> but in this particular case, maybe these gray faces have some, it's not a Magic. torch for them. It's, it's, it's it, you know, it's burning pitch right, right, right. <laughs> on a stick. Hey, on a stick. <laughs> Is that kind of like ball in a cup? <laughs> burning bitch on a stick. Okay. <laughs> Kalam watched, then moved up the street. When he came to the last squatter shack, he entered. Quick Ben was seated in the center of the dirt floor. He asked, any luck? 
Kalam said, no, the gill's gone to ground. Why? I've no idea. He went and sat on his bedroll. He asked, you think maybe the city council's moved to take out the local assassins? Quick Ben asks if Kalam means they anticipated the Malazans would make contact. Kalam said, I doubt they're idiots. They must know it's the Malazan way. Offer the guild a contract it can't refuse, then sit back and watch the rulers drop like headless flies. Whiskey Jack suggested the plan. Dujek okayed it. Those two were talking the old emperor's language there, Quick. The old man must be laughing in the abyss right now. Quick Ben shivered and said, an unpleasant image. <laughs> Kalam went on to say that it doesn't matter unless they can find a local assassin and there were none in the lakefront district the only name that had mystery around it was someone named the eel who wasn't an assassin but something else (laughs) quick ben asked (laughs) quick ben asked where next the gadrobi district Kalam told him no they were a bunch of herders they try the daru district (laughs) What? Yes, you are hurting those sheep. <laughs> Sorry, sheep hurting. <laughs> yes, I. Yes, you are hurting those sheep. He then asked Quick Ben about how his side of things was going. Quick Ben bowed his head, then quietly said, "Almost ready." Kalam said, "Whiskey Jack nearly choked when he heard your proposal. So did I. <laughs> You'll be walking into the Vipers' den, Quick. You sure it's necessary?" Quick Ben looked up and said, no. Personally, I'd rather we just dropped everything and ran away from it all. From the Empire, from Darujistan, from war. But try convincing the sergeant to do that. He's loyal to an idea, and that's the hardest kind to turn. Kalam nodded and said, honor, integrity, all that expensive crap. Right. And these two are loyal to Whiskey Jack. Enough to set their misgivings aside. And that says a lot. It does. Well, it's like they have the same type of loyalty, but almost don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it because he's doing it. Well, I guess it's the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. They're loyal enough to do what he wants. Exactly. Quick Ben said, right. So we do it this way because it's the only way left to us. Hairlock's insanity has become a liability, but we can use him still one last time. Power draws power, and with luck, Hairlock's demise will do just that. The more ascendance we can lure into the fray, the better. Wow. Kalam noted that he thought that was something to avoid. Quickman offered a strained smile and said, tell me about it. But right now, the more confusion and chaos, the better. Kalam asked, what about if Tashrin found out? Quickman widened his smile and said, then we're dead all that much sooner. So it goes. (laughs) Kalam barked a humorless laugh and repeated, so it goes. Quickman cocked his head and noted the sun had gone down. It was time to start. Kalam asked if Quick Ben wanted him to leave. Quick Ben said no. If he didn't come back, Kalam was to take his body and burn it to ash, then scatter it to the four winds, then curse his name with all his heart. Kalam was silent, then growled, How long do I wait? Quick Ben told him, Don, you understand I would only ask this of my closest friend. Kalam said, I understand. Now get on with it, damn it. Quickman gestured, which caused a ring of fire to spring up around him. He closed his eyes. He seemed to visibly deflate slightly, as if something essential to life had disappeared. His chin sank down to his chest and his shoulders slumped. 
and a long breath escaped with a slow hiss. The ring of fire flared, then dimmed to a lapping glimmer on the earth. Kalam shifted position a bit, then waited. Imagine watching your best friend doing this crazy, <laughs> insanely dangerous stuff. What? Do you think Kalam is a little desensitized to it, given how long they've known each other? Now, remember how he responded during the soul-shifting ceremony yeah. with Herlock. He knew exactly what to do. Yeah. I don't know if it's a desensitized or just the fact that with Ben, you've got to be ready for anything. Mm. And I think if Quick Ben's head were to split open and something or someone crawled out, I don't think Kalam would be surprised. <laughs> but he'd be upset, though, right? I mean, that's his best be friend, upset. basically. Yeah, okay. He would be upset. Yeah. But he wouldn't okay. be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Back in the Phoenix Inn... A pale Marilio sat down at the table with Kruppa and Crocus. He said, someone's disposing of the body. Whoever killed Chert was a professional with a real nasty streak, right through the eye. Kruppa cried out, enough! Kruppa <laughs> happens to be eating, dear Marilio, and Kruppa also happens to have a delicate stomach. <laughs> Marilio ignored Kruppa and continued, Chert was a fool, but hardly the type to attract such viciousness. Yeah. Crocus said nothing, though he had seen the blood on Sari's dagger. Kruppa said maybe Chert was witness to some horrific horror and was stamped out as a man crushes a cute mouse underfoot. <laughs> Crocus glanced around and his gaze returned to Sari. She reminded him of a time when he had seen the Crimson Guard ride through the city, 500 men and women without a shiny buckle among them. He wondered what Chert had done to deserve the knife in the eye. Crocus noticed Ralik had entered the bar. As he approached the table, he seemed unconscious of the locals moving from his path. Unconscious or not worth his time to notice? I think it's uh, the latter. <laughs> not worth <laughs> yeah. his time to notice. Yeah. Call intercepted Ralik before he could reach the table and drunkenly slapped him on the back, then leaned drunkenly against him. He said, Nom, you old bastard. <laughs> Ralik threw an arm around Call's shoulders, and they walked to the table together. Kruppa greeted them and motioned to the two empty chairs at the table. He said, Ho, my dear comrades, Kruppa invites you to join our familiar gathering to bring you up to date on our dramatic doings. The lad Crocus has been staring dreamily into space while Marilio and Kruppa have discussed the latest natterings of the street rats. <laughs> Call remained standing a bit unsteady with a frown knitting his brows. Ralik sat and asked about the natterings. Marilio mentioned a rumor that they were now allied with Moon's spawn. Kruppa said nonsense, of course. Have you seen anything to suggest such a thing? Marilio noted that the moon hadn't moved away, and there was a council tent stationed directly beneath it. Crocus said that he had heard from his uncle that the councilman had no luck in getting a message to Moon's spawn. Marilio said typical, his eyes narrowing briefly on Ralik. What's this about? Crocus getting information from his uncle? Why is that look mentioned? I don't know. I can only think that would, would do something to... Maybe they're wondering if this will impact their plans. The mm. plan. Sorry. The plan. The plan. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I have to compliment your Baron Harkonnen impersonation. When you <laughs> brought that up, that was great, man. I love that. That's one of my favorite lines. The plan. My plan. <laughs> I love that Harkonnen. I don't know why that guy that creeps me out. He's so gross. I mean, he is the sweatiest of white right. guys. <laughs> he is he's he's like, like the sweaty god. Sweaty <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I love how we thought of the same thing. He's the avatar yeah. of the sweaty white guy. Yeah, he's like, like a, if you're familiar with Warhammer 40K, he's like a Nurgle. <laughs> right? Oh, I, I don't see. I don't know. But the great the, unclean uh, one. Oh, see, I, I, Nurgle <laughs> is, a de- is, a, is a demon name from Constantine, but it's okay. also a, it's also a rank of of like the ancient Babylonians. Okay, there was like some Nurgle some things are, are listed as like it's some kind of rank, I believe, as a Nurgle. Mm-hmm. They're mentioned in the Bible. It's the only place I've seen the word Nurgles before. <laughs> okay, okay, or Nurgle or Crocus asked who lived in Moonspawn. Call tottered and threw both hands down on the table. He thrust his red face into Crocus's and bellowed, Five black dragons. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Is he wrong? No comment. I don't, I don't I, no, no, I can say no comment here. I don't know if he's, he, might, he might be right. Sometimes, you know, drunks and fools say the right <laughs> thing sometimes. <laughs> Quick Ben found himself in the Warren of Chaos. There were innumerable shifting pathways that led to doors. I'm going to quote this exactly here because it's a bit confusing. Yeah. Quote, Though he called them doors, they were in fact barriers created where Warrens touched. A calcretion of energy as solid as basalt. Chaos touched on all realms with gnarled fingertips bleeding power. The doors hardened wounds in the flesh of other worlds, other avenues of magic. He had focused his talents on such doors. While within the Warren of Chaos, he had learned the ways of shaping their energy. He'd found means of altering the barriers, of sensing what lay beyond them. Each Warren of Magic possessed a smell, each realm a texture, and though the pathways he took were never the same as those he'd taken before, he had mastered the means of finding those he sought. He traveled now down one of those paths, a track of nothingness enclosed by the Warren's own accretions twisting and fraught with contradictions on one trail he'd will himself forward yet find himself moving back he'd come to a sharp right turn followed by another then another then yet another all in the same direction he knew it was the power of his mind that opened the pathways but they had their own laws or perhaps they were his yet unknown to him whatever the source of the shaping it was madness defined end quote that sounds like it would drive you crazy. Yeah. It's like a shifting maze of mirrors. <laughs> yeah. Because you know how they have those those mirror mazes. Mm-hmm. They're bad enough, but what if they're moving? <laughs> right. Always, always shifting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, wow. Shows what kind of skill. He's very skilled. Oh, yes. Yeah. This does reinforce our description of the vascular system with the chaos lying outside of the other Warrens, yeah. right? Cause it's touching yeah. all of them. Yeah. yeah. It's very much cause like, like chaos, like the war, the, the vascular system is where the magic goes, but the chaos it's the Warrens exist inside the chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. yes. Finally, quick Ben came to the door. He sought, he whispered a command and his spirit took the form of his own body. He mastered the disconnected tremble of his ghost body, then stepped forward and laid hands on the door. The edges hard and worn, the center grew hot and soft to the touch. The surface slowly lost its opaqueness beneath the wizard's hand and became glassy like obsidian. So this is behaving like chocolate. It's hard when it's cold and soft when it heats up. Are you hungry? (laughs) I mean, for chocolate, chocolate, what do you you not want chocolate? Right. 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 (laughs) 
He had never tried to use a door like this before and wasn't even sure it was possible. If it worked, he didn't even know if there was a way to return. His final worry was that he was about to enter a realm where he wasn't welcome. He opened his eyes and said, I am direction. He leaned into the barrier and said, I am the power of will in a place that respects this and only this. He leaned harder and said, I'm the Warren's touch. To chaos, nothing is immune. The door began to yield. He threw up a hand behind him to defend against a growing pressure. He hissed, only I shall pass. Suddenly, with a thumping sound, he slipped through. Energy flared around his body. I guess if he didn't push back, he would leave a wound in the barrier and allow chaos to rush into the warren, right? Yeah, I think so. And it's also, this. maybe he's doing this also so he doesn't alert whoever is, maybe maybe this is his way of sneaking in here too. Mm-hmm. By not just not by not just bullying his way through it like Hairlock's been just punching through him. It sounds like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he, this sounds like yeah, like he doesn't want to create this kind of wound. Well, I, you know what? We know he doesn't want to create this kind of wound. Yeah, he doesn't. Lot, he doesn't want. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the later things later on. This you know what? This answers something for me from from way later. Okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, he was greeted by parched earth on a barren plain. The horizon off to his left was humped with low hills. Overhead, the sky was the color of quicksilver, with a scatter of long, stringy black clouds moving in unison. He sat down and folded his legs, clasping his hands in his lap. He said, Shadow Throne, Lord of Shadows, I am come to your realm. Will you receive my presence as befits a peaceful visitor? He heard the howling of hounds in answer. And thus the chapter ends. What a way to end the chapter. What a cliffhanger. <laughs> I, I love it, dude. It's great. Such a, good, such a good chapter. Yes. For standout moments, Moby acting like Moby. <laughs> I love how he flopped on the desk and scattered the papers everywhere. Yeah. He yes. was acting up. I a little love sassy. Mm. <laughs> Pally. <Yeah. laughs> Kruppa's oh. dance of thievery in the crowd. Oh, you know, and, and again, that's just one of those iconic scenes that's a burn in my mind. Just as much as it's it's as, the same thing to me as Harlock sticking out frying great ravens <laughs> sticks with me. It's just like it's no different, even though it's more. It shouldn't be sinister or powerful, but we've learned something about he is obviously he's at least powerful, mm-hmm. and he saw and he saw he's been followed. Yeah, by, by sorry, that's that's something. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty impressive. Yes, it is. And that's his town. Yeah, that's true. This is it. He'll go sneaking around his hometown thinking he ain't going to see you. <laughs> Please. Yeah. The scene with the coin falling on the bar and spinning, that was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. yes. Love it. Quick Ben using the Warren of Chaos to enter the Warren of Shadow to speak with Shadow Throne. What a <laughs> madman. Absolutely. He is definitely like the squirreliest of the squirrely, but man, this guy, this is who squirrels look up to for lessons. Oh, yeah. And, and, but I've, Ben is, it's hard to call out who is the all time best because I've named characters in my game Fiddler and Whiskey Jack forever, but <laughs> there's times mm-hmm. I name them Ben and mm-hmm. it's always because of, it's always because of Quick and <laughs> mm-hmm. all these names are all valid to using in video games. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, okay. So you haven't, like you don't have like a, a fixed name that you name your characters when you're Fiddler. creating. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's almost always Fiddler. Okay. Interesting. 
I love Fiddler an awful lot. And I, and I, I can't really put my finger on why it's Fiddler so much. I think it's because of the overall – it's the picture of Fiddler as a whole. Yeah. And, I th- you know, from front to end. You really don't whole. get much of him in this book. No. Not all you is. all you get is he put his sword in the puddle. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a history of something to do with – that and then him and Hedge kind of getting excited about blowing stuff up, but oh gosh, and, and he's got uh, sense, right? But yeah, you really don't get much of him in this book. No, there's he's very. It's just he's just one of the names in the crowd for the most part. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, kind of. You know, this especially as we shift into the book here, I, I think that we tend to lean heavily on the on the Dirigistan home team. Almost, you know, it's like we lean on because they are so involved in the rest of the story mm-hmm. and so we'll have a lot to do with them it's specifically bridge burners and them but uh i'm just trying to think ahead i can't i can't right now I, i'm only one chapter ahead right now so <laughs> okay do you have any final thoughts no just man, drop off here? just great episode really yeah, good, good job show. tonight yeah really good energy really had a great time I, yeah, I, yeah I, a lot of a lot digressions of, tonight a lot of professional digressions <laughs> yeah you're welcome it's, it's part, of the, part of the service we provide folks yeah thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next yep. week Yep, next week. We thank you all for joining us today. Again, we'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, and we've had a really great time talking about the topic today. If you would like to support our show, you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com, where you can find our Patreon link. Depending on the platform you're listening from, it may also be in the episode description. And if you'd like to contact us uh, through email, it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com.